Hello and welcome to episode 175 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Vienna, Virginia. This is Ben Olson. With me is Nathan Fox in Los Angeles. How's it going, Nathan? Great, man. How are you? What, uh, we were delayed this morning. What happened? Yeah, I got pulled over. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, the only reason it's, it's, uh, interesting, at least to me, is that I got pulled over yesterday. So for the same thing, basically yesterday I was driving on the freeway and I guess my inspection sticker had expired and I didn't realize that it's expired long ago back in September and I just never took care of it. And somehow a police officer saw that and pulled me over and I was like, what am I getting pulled over for? I don't always drive the speed limit, but I certainly was then. And, um, he was nice about it. And he said, Oh, your inspection is expired. You need to get that taken care of. And then today I was driving around and a police officer pulled me over and said, Hey, your ex- inspection is expired. And I, I was just kind of surprised, I guess that, um, I don't know, all of a sudden everybody's noticing, but it's been, like, is it just months. a tiny little sticker? It's like, that's just the tiny little, yeah. I don't know. In California, we just have like a month, the month never changes. And then there's just a year. Well, there's that it's, um, that's registration. Yeah, oh, you guys get have or something. inspection and yeah, we don't have that in California. Yeah. So Anyways, so you didn't get a ticket or anything? Uh, I did get a ticket yesterday, but I showed the officer today my ticket, and she was like... <laughs> you said you're working on it. She, she, yeah, I said, she said, when do you plan to fix this? And I said, um, uh, at first I was like, <laughs> as soon as I can, but she had a really stern look on her face. I was like, today? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, that's the right answer. I was like, thank you. And then she came back like 10 minutes later. You know, they always like take forever. Yeah even though I wasn't speeding anywhere. And she's like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to let you off the hook today with a warning because you got a ticket yesterday. I was like, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) I guess that's what I was expecting, but maybe I shouldn't have expected that. Yeah. I don't, they could probably just keep lighting you up for tickets as long as you keep it on the road. Yeah. I don't know. Without your inspection sticker. I mean, it's silly because you, I'm sure you have a decent car. It's not like you're driving around some piece of shit that really needs to be <laughs> checked out. Right. <laughs> it's probably the LSAT license plate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This jerk. What's, yeah. What's on the show today? Okay. So we have a question about reading comp strategy. We have an update from a college debater. From episode 157, I guess we talked about this person. Then um, we're going to tackle an LSAT India question. And then we have a polished personal statement to review. We are also going to talk about, I don't know, should we talk about right now? We're going to have a joint talk on the 28th. We are. That's amazing. I'm I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, GW. Mm -hmm. So GW... I don't know if we reached out to them or they reached out to us, but uh, in any case, they said, hey, come on over um, and talk to us about the recent changes to the LSAT in 2019. And I said, I'd be happy to do that. And so they are offering an event for their students. And then they, they said, hey, feel free to invite anyone. So we ended up inviting students from Georgetown and other schools in the area. And then somehow you got wind of this. I don't Maybe Matt told you or something. I should have told you, but I just wasn't thinking. And you offered to come out. So that'll be fun. That's January 28th. It's a Monday. It's at 5.30 p.m. We'll provide the link in the email. And it's uh, at GW. Yeah, that'll be uh, linked on thinkinglsat.com. 
And I'm sure we'll post it on Facebook and everywhere else. So, uh, yeah, come on out. It's called Advice on the New LSAT. Yep. Changes to the LSAT in 2019. Hmm. We didn't write that title, did we? We did not, but... (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe we did. I hope... I don't know. I I don't remember writing that. Yeah, the LSAT's not changing, but uh, I guess the times you take it and the digital LSAT, those are changing. Oh, that's... that's I was just saying... I wouldn't have written advice on the new LSAT written. changes to yeah. the LSAT. I don't know. I... <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we'll be at GW uh, Law School on January 28th at 5.30 p.m. And you can, it's a free uh, open to the public event. You just have to RSVP. Yep. So there's a link on our site. Come see us. Cool. Uh, if you have questions, you can always email the show at help at thinkinglsat.com. Uh, send us your selfies too if you're so inclined. If you have not joined the Facebook group or our Facebook group, please do so. We have, uh, let's see, 1,221 members as of this airing. And that seems to keep growing every week, right? I feel like it is. It's growing every week. Just take the advice that you find there with a grain of salt. We, we're not uh, endorsing all of the advice that we that we see there because there are definitely are people in the group who don't seem to listen to the show or at least not take the show's advice. So <laughs> just uh, be a little careful when you read uh, advice on our on our Facebook group. Yeah, you can always tweet us at Thinking Elsat, Nathan at N Fox, and me at Olson Benjamin. We both provide live and online classes in our respective states. I'm at strategyprep.com and Nathan is at foxlsat.com. My classes are in DC. Nathan is in LA and San Francisco. We both do one-on-one tutoring on Skype with people all around the world. What's the uh, furthest country you've ever tutored someone in, Nathan? Oh, um, Korea. I've, People in Europe and people in Korea. So I I guess I don't know if I've like the farthest would have to be you'd have to get to like Australia or something. Oh, I, I don't yeah. know if I've ever tutored anybody in Australia. Ooh, I kind of feel like I have, but it, seem, it oh. seems like I'd remember that more or at least maybe I had an online student from Australia. But yeah, uh, I had a student in Russia, too. That was fun. So, wow. Amazing. Yeah. People all over the world taking the LSAT for whatever reason. We also have our joint project, which is the LSAT Demon. We did a lot of work on it yesterday. The shit also hit the fan. (laughs) And uh, everyone started emailing us and saying, wait a sec, Uh, my study history is saying things that are crazy and wonky. But uh, I think we got that resolved this morning. And we also rolled out the beta version of taking timed sections on the Demon online, on your phone, anywhere, anytime. So try it out. Let us know what you think and we'll keep improving it. Yeah. Should want to read these demon updates? Sure. Edwin writes, the demon has been incredible exclamation point. I've had not, I have not had this much fun studying for the LSAT. Well, for a second there, I thought he was going to say he, he had not had this much fun ever or something like that. I was like, <laughs> that's disturbing. But anyways, had not, have not had this much fun studying for the LSAT. That's great news. As odd as that may sound, this program is exactly what I need to hunker down and focus on prepping for the exam. Thanks, Edwin. Yeah. You know, it's still, it's funny. We've been developing it for several months now, well, almost a year, I guess, if you go back before we launched it. And it still feels like 
were trying to make it better and better and there are little glitches here and there and people will kindly write in and tell us what needs to be improved. But at the same time, we get these kinds of emails and it's encouraging that it's working for people even if it has these chinks uh, or whatever, you know. Yeah, the people who love it, love it. Can I read this next one? Yeah, go ahead. And this is from a student in my class uh, here in Los Angeles We've been, uh, Ben and I have both been giving the demon as a bonus for people who are in our live classes. And uh, so this is a live student who says, Hey, Nathan, just wanted to shoot you and Ben a huge thank you for making, for both making in general and making available the LSAT demon to the class. I fucking love it. I'm going to fanboy for a moment about stuff I know you already know, but it's warranted. It's a superb interface, intuitively responsive, loaded with easy-to-access teaching and explanations, readily available progress tracking, and more. You name it, it's got it, while still being simple and streamlined. For someone trying to be discreet about LSAT studying due to my current employer not knowing my future lawyerly goals, now I can study on my breaks effectively without trying to hide the very awesome but very large Logical Reasoning Encyclopedia. Thank you. Thank you for making another great product that actually preps people effectively and on top of that is reasonably priced. My best, Matt. Thanks so much, Matt. I love the stealth mode uh, aspect of that, that he's just studying at work uh, on his phone. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, that is. Um, now it's even easier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, so that's that. Uh, thanks, everybody, for your support and your patience as we continue to add new features. Um, it creates new problems, but we are also able to solve them when you reach out to us and let us know what's going on, at least in your account. And it's exciting. It's fun to see people make progress. Yeah, I guess as long as we're on that, the development front, Ben, you're doing all the software stuff. I'm doing new explanations. So we're starting to get a pretty steady stream of requests for new explanations. Yeah. And I've been, um, I haven't been recording video explanations. I've been really trying to write uh, responses to all of those, which takes quite a bit more time. Mm hmm. Yeah, but we we got the feedback that people wanted a mix of videos and written explanations, and so I've been I've been writing those, and uh, AJ's been editing them and then posting them to the demon. So if you uh, run across a question that's bothering you and you want an explanation, just use the I don't even know what it is a button or a yeah it's need help ask so ask okay the demon favors questions that have explanations already. But if that explanation doesn't answer your particular question, you can just click the ask button and that will go to me and Nathan. Right now, Nathan is dutifully taking the charge on that <laughs> as me and AJ try to swim in the development pond. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, and, and I'm happy to do it. I mean, it's been nice to have the writing prompts. Each one of those, you know, if somebody says, Hey, can you just explain this question or can you do a new explanation for this question? Mm hmm. I just take it as, oh, okay, here's a little writing assignment and I'm happily um, writing new explanations, trying to make them clear, but also amusing at the same time so that you're not bored and want to kill yourself while you're studying for the LSAT. So anyways, it's, uh, it's getting better every day. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, this, sorry, this next thing, I just asked Sarah to add this to the agenda because that book that I was telling you about last week, Unfuck Yourself. I think that's what yeah. it's called. Uh, one of the chapters is titled, You Are Not Your Thoughts, You Are Your Actions. And I don't remember everything that he said in that chapter, but I, I remember uh, kind of the feeling of 
walking away from listening to that chapter. And it's like, we, he said something like, we think like 50,000 thoughts a, a day or something. And a lot of times what you decide to do is based on how you feel in the moment. And he went through a bunch of examples of people who are just like, they probably felt like shit, but what they felt or thought was different from what they decided to do. And that's all that really matters at the end of the day. And I was like, that's, that's true. And so a lot of times now, since reading that chapter, like if I'm like, "Ah, I'm not feeling it, I'm not going to do whatever it is I, I wanted to do now. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like my thoughts don't really matter. What matters is do I do this thing or not do this thing? Am I tired? Who cares if I want to do this thing, do I want to do it or not? And so, um, anyways, I just thought I'd share that thought. I feel like sometimes people, you know, take forever to get started on their studying and it's like, don't think about studying, just do it or do something else. (laughs) Yeah. I, I love it. I, I, that like hit me, that little snippet of our conversation last week. I, I definitely thought about it. I've been thinking about it all week. I, I, in fact, I even went on Wednesday night to my class in, in Koreatown and talked to my students. And instead of, you know, chit chatting to them about New Year's resolutions, I was like, Hey, so what are you doing? Mm. You know, what, what, what change are you actually making? Like, what are, what are we doing? And I told them about how I was creating routines for myself, healthy routines, like my sunset hiking that I've been doing and yeah. trying to tack on other routines to that. And, um, we had like a really nice talk, went around the room and everybody said what they were doing. Of course, many of them were LSAT related. You know, I am studying for 35 minutes every morning or whatever it was. Hmm. Uh, but some of them were really interesting. Like one girl has, has been doing a hundred pushups every day. Oh, wow. And, yeah. yeah. And in fact, even going and doing 40 of them, um, or 50 of them during the break uh, in our class, <laughs> like going huh. into an empty room and hammering out her pushups. And it's just like, yeah, well, you're, you're actually doing shit now. Yeah. You know, so like instead of talking about what we're going to do, we just talk about what we are actually doing. I love it. That's a great example too. Cause you know, how many, <laughs> how many times do we say, oh, yeah, I want to do this, but I just don't have the time. I'm so busy. And it's like, Everyone in your class went to your class and went home. She went to your class, she went home, but she actually did something toward her goal and yeah. didn't take any extra time than anyone else, right? Like they were just no. on their phone or something during the break or talking to their neighbor, which is great too. But anyways. Yeah. I mean, you can do both. That's the amazing thing is that if you actually just start doing things, you realize how much time you have right i yeah. mean that's that's like how busy people always get more done than not busy people mm-hmm. because it just you <laughs> you just get in the mode of of acting rather than getting in the mode of like planning to act mm-hmm. i do this procrastination thing all the time when i don't have enough work to do yeah. i can take three hours to figure out like where i want to go to lunch <laughs> i can like yeah. i can walk around and like well, i don't know do i want to do that well but i don't know if i want to and it's like Next thing you know, your whole day is just like bleeding away because you haven't just been acting, you know, but then when you're real busy, you can't do that. So you just end up doing everything that you need to do. Yeah. Well, the other thing is when I'm busy and I know that I'm busy, I can, 
I know what's going to happen for the rest of the day. When you're sitting there in a moment and you want to do X, Y, or Z, it's sort of like, I need to do this now or it's never going to happen because the next two hours are tutoring. The next hour after that is driving to class. And it's like, if I don't do it now, it's not going to happen, which is a huge thing in getting things done is just starting, right? Totally. Hmm. Yep. So anyways, that's the thought. You are not your thoughts. You are your actions. Yeah, that's great. Stop planning your LSAT. <laughs> I get so many emails. It's like, it's actually funny. I got an email yesterday from a guy who was scoring like 140 and wanted advice. Mm-hmm. It's like he wanted advice on his, it, he just was kind of rambling about what score he wants and what <laughs> score he has. You know those emails, right? Yeah, yeah. Get them all and, yeah. And like, I got these books and I just wanted to know if you had any advice or tips about my study plan. And I, re- I emailed back and I'm like, dude, you didn't tell me what your study plan is. What's your question? Mm-hmm. And he writes back like, oh, well, I just want to, you know, do you think I'm going to be ready to take the test in March? Oh, it's like, <laughs> dude what <laughs> ask a substantive question or like, tell me what your plan is and I can look at it. But otherwise, if you're just, all it is is like a kind of stats debating, right? Just like fantasizing about your score that you want instead of like doing something to go get that score. Hmm. So all this, when I get emails about like, Hey, can you help me put together a study plan? I'm always like, yeah, how about you start studying right now? Yeah. And like, what are you doing right now to, to just get better? Like all you got to do is one LSAT question right now. <laughs> it's like fitness too. Right? I mean, it, really like, oh, I want to get fit. Okay. Do a push up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's it. Every time you have the thought, I wish I was more fit. Okay. Do a push up. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I could take that advice. But well, anyway. No, I mean, it's true. Like I was just talking to someone the other day about starting a business and he had all these plans for how to get his website going and how to get a logo created and a a brand identity. I'm like business plan. And yeah. All that. I was yeah. like, dude, so you want to, you want to sell shirts. That's cool. Make a shirt tonight. Yeah. Buy it on custom ink, start wearing it. And when people ask you about it, say, I can sell you one. Like you don't need a website. You don't need a logo. You don't need any of this. You need a product. You need a thing to sell. You need to sell, yeah. not think about selling. Yeah. Yeah, we're in the United States. Yeah. Like we, I mean, so I I have an MBA and in, in the MBA program, you know, that of course you're going to like all these fancy business plans, marketing plans, just plans and plans and plans and like fancy PowerPoints and all this bullshit. Right. Mm -hmm. And I a hundred percent agree with you, Ben, that you just, no, you just start doing it. Like don't get a fucking attorney. Don't get a license (laughs) from your city. Don't make any kind of a plan at all. Just don't borrow money. (laughs) Just, you know, like make a small, tiny investment and get to a saleable product as quickly as you possibly can. Just start selling it. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, what were you going to say, Ben? Oh, well, sorry, it's a little bit of a tangent. I would I agree 100% with what you were saying. I, it, this reminds me of um, a book I read several, like maybe a year ago, and they were talking about how when you imagine accomplishing a goal, the same activity occurs in your brain as actually accomplishing it. So if you imagine like winning a marathon, or, or not even winning, just completing a marathon, right? 
you get nearly the same effect in your brain as you do of actually accomplishing it. And so one of the problems with like imagining the future and what you're going to do is that you get that dopamine reward. Oh, I see. And so (laughs) you can actually just D you can end up demotivating yourself because you've already rewarded your brain. Just like, is it, is your own personal experience, you know, just try to imagine accomplishing something and how you feel about that thought. You you tend to feel good. You're like, Oh wow, that would be really cool. Well, now you've just kind of like disincentivized yourself to go after it because you've already gotten the reward and didn't take any effort, just a little imagination. So anyways, uh, one more reason to stop stats debating and start just working. That's probably why people yeah, or, do it because they feel so great. Like, oh, if I got that 170, wow, that would be cool. Yeah, feels good, doesn't it? But you don't have it. Or everybody could just just be on the couch and just only fantasize about things. <laughs> <laughs> just decide that you're not going to actually do any of them. You're just going to only sit at home and make yourself happy by fantasizing about it. <laughs> I imagine that has some like longer term consequences that. <laughs> Eventually you like face reality, right? Maybe your mind's like, okay, we're done. Well, it just makes me think of my dad. My dad, he, he's sort of like aggressively unfit sometimes. He just, he, so he talks about people in my hometown in the central Valley of California. He, he talks about people just, or he, him and his buddies out at the like country club. He talks about them as being fat and happy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, cause he, he like, he's the guy that like will turn up his nose if he sees people run past, mm. you know, like people running for fitness and he sees them running and he's like, Oh, that just looks terrible. That looks awful. Who would ever want to do that? Yeah. And it's like, and he, then he's just, he likes to describe himself as fat and happy. Mm. Uh, if you are in fact fat and happy, I mean, okay, great. Like that's great. Happiness. That's great. Yep. But then I question whether you really are, especially when you start to have like health problems related to your lack of activity, physical activity. And when you mock other people about it, there's a little (laughs) underlying message there that maybe you're jealous. Yeah, or something. I don't (laughs) know what it is with him. But uh, anyways, that's yeah. We're wow. We're this is a tangent, tangent heavy show. Sorry. No, maybe that's the name of the show. Pure tangents. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, one more announcement. Sure. You want to go to Las Vegas, Ben? Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Jeez. Yes. Hell yeah. Vegas. Okay. So what's going to yeah, happen? Yeah. What are the dates Vegas? on that? Um, March 15th, the yep. Ides of March, March 15th, 2019. We're going to be in Vegas teaching your favorite live thinking LSAT class weekend class. So Saturday and Sunday from what, like 10 to five or something like that. Plus socializing on yeah, Friday well, night so, and stuff like yeah. Yeah, it's two full days of instruction when we do those joint classes and 10 to 5 is about as much as people can really stomach. I mean, it's easy for us. Like we could go longer, but the students seem like they're kind of starting to flag around four o'clock each day. Yeah. Uh, like I have to turn down the heat in the room to make sure that people are staying awake, mm-hmm. you know, after lunch. But we we hang out at lunch too and we do social events usually on Friday and or Saturday night. So uh yeah. Go to thinkinglset.com, sign up for that class. Um, we're giving a discount, Ben. Yes. So it's three ninety five for the class, but if you are an active subscriber of the LSAT Demon at LSATDemon.com, 
or you're in one of our live classes or online classes, we will give you $100 off so that it's only $295. Book your hotel rooms now. Um, I think that's right before March Madness starts. So it might be uh, it's a good idea to just take a look at your hotel rooms. Um, we're not exactly sure where we're going to be teaching the class yet, but we will have that information for you very shortly, probably next week. Yes. Great. Are we going to have an early registration discount? I don't know. Should we? I think we should. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. So an additional $100 off if you register yeah. before February 1st? Yes. Okay. Yes. So $100 off if you register before February 1st. That's in addition to the $100 off if you're already an active Demon subscriber or in one of our live or online classes. Yeah. Boy, we're just giving it away, Ben. <laughs> we just want to go to Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take all the money we get from this and put it on one spin of roulette, red or black. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I so we just get great. zero or double. Yeah. Want to do it? Yeah. yeah. That'll be fun. We could bring the whole group and do it. Yeah. Okay. Good plan. Okay. Great. Maybe good plan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. shit. That's also St. Patrick's Day on Sunday the 17th. Is, Interesting. Is that, is that good or bad? Do I don't know. I have never... That? Well, St. Patrick's Day is just like a normal day, a big boozing day. And I imagine yeah. that people are really boozing it in Vegas on St. Patrick's Day. Okay. But uh, we will not be doing that. Not in class anyway. Nope. Maybe after class. Cool. Cool. All right. Want to get to the content? Yeah, let's do it. You want to take let's this email from Lemonhead? Sure. It says, hi, Ben and Nathan. I've been struggling with some questions in reading comp and was hoping you could help me out. In particular, I'm having a really tough time with, quote, the passage was written primarily in order to answer which one of the following questions stems, especially on the comparative passages. Let me read that one more time. The passage was written primarily in order to answer which one of the following questions. Hmm. I already have some thoughts, but let me just finish this email. Okay. When I read the answer choices, I feel like I can make a case for two or three of them. Mm, yeah, that's, I knew that. I knew, I knew it. And I have a hard time focusing in on the right one. I'll try them again on blind review, and sometimes I get them right, but often I still get them wrong. What should I be focusing on when attacking these questions? I'm trying to connect with the passage. Maybe I'm connecting with the wrong parts? Thanks for the podcast. You guys have seriously helped me up my LSAT game, Lemonhead. Did you ever eat Lemonheads when you were a kid, Ben? The, I'm sure that I did at some point. Yeah. I seem to remember they're kind of sour, right? On the outside. They are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're sour. They're good. Yeah. I like those. Yeah. They used to be 10 cents a box at the like dime store in my ten cents hometown. For a box. Well, the tiny box, the small oh, box. Okay. They were, but they were 10 cents and there were, there was grape ones that were called Alexander the grape. Oh yeah. I remember that. There were cherry ones that were called cherry clan. And in retrospect, they were like super racist because the cherry was like, Chinese looking and it had it and it called it was or whatever Asian looking and it was called Cherry Clan. Mm. I don't that's not very nice. I don't think they probably had to get rid of those. And I'm trying to think if there was another one. Maybe there was like a cinnamon one, but I don't like cinnamon candy, so I would only get the lemon heads mostly and sometimes the grape and cherry ones. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a candy update from 1984. <laughs> Tangent number yep. 12. 
Um, so here's what I'm thinking about this reading comp question. The passage was written primarily in order to answer which one of the following questions. You know, that's really a main point question. That is a main point question. Yeah. So when I then, what I'm thinking on a main point question is, you got to predict the answer. Mm-hmm. You cannot be looking at the answer choices, hoping that, that one of the answer, one or more, <laughs> that's the problem is that one or more of the answer choices are going to seem good. Because yeah. here Lemonhead is saying, when I read the answer choices, I feel like I can make a case for two or three of them. But that's not your job. You're, you're not supposed to be arguing for answer choices. You're not supposed to be helping answer choices. You're supposed to be looking for reasons why answer choices are wrong. Yeah. Because four out of five answer choices are wrong. When you read A, there's an 80% chance that A is wrong. And so you should be looking for why is A wrong. And if you can't disprove A, then A might be the answer. The best way to do that is to know what you're looking for before you go into the answer choices. I mean, why was this passage written? That's essentially what the question's asking. Why was this passage written? Yeah. What were they investigating here? What did they want? What were they trying to figure out? What was the main point? I think people don't realize how many of the questions are essentially just asking you what was the main point. Like, did you know, they kind of just over and over. Yep. Did you get it? Did you get the point? What was the main point? What was the author's attitude? What was the primary purpose? (laughs) The passage was written primarily to answer which one of the following questions. Yeah. And I find that when people realize that, they're like, oh, I need to find the main point. And then I ask them what the main point is. It's universal, at least for people who are starting out. They say this, these exact words. They say, the passage was about yeah, whatever. And it's like, okay, you just answered a different question. You answered the question, what is the topic? What is the topic of the passage? The topic could be tigers, but I need to know what the main point is. In other words, if you sat down across from the author of this passage and you said, look, I'm sorry, I don't have time to read this. Will you tell me the bottom line? They're not going to say, well, you know, it was about um, spiders in Africa. That's not the bottom line. That's, it's useless. You're like, okay, what do I need to know about spiders in Africa? Well, what I was trying to tell you is that they fight for their territory or something like that, right? And they do it in these three ways. Okay, now I understand what you were trying to tell me in these four paragraphs. So you need clear, short sentences, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three short sentences that convey ideas, complete sentences that say, this is what the author wants you to know or believe. Yeah. I, I say, you know, I don't ask the students, what was the passage about? Because then they'll always say the topic. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Instead I say, what did they want? Mm -hmm. What do they want? Why does this document exist? Why is this, why is this document in our law office? Why, what, what do we need to do about this? What's their agenda? What are they selling? Yeah. What do they want us to do? What action do they want us to take? And if you can ask yourself those questions, not only at the end of the passage, 
but at the end of each paragraph. And not only at the end of each paragraph, but probably at the end of the first or second sentence, right? Immediately start asking yourself that question at the top of the passage. Mm -hmm. You'll find that you're comprehending the passage a lot better as you're reading it. And when you get when you get done with the passage, you should just you should feel pretty confident that you can answer to my satisfaction. And I have pretty high standards for this, but you should be able to say, oh, yeah, they basically wanted X. Yeah. If you can't do that, then, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? Are you are you really even reading the passage? I don't, I don't know. Like you just you have to you have to take it seriously enough that you can do that. I think students, because they race the clock, they just don't, you know, it's just they read it, but they don't comprehend it. And it's called reading comprehension. That is true. So Lemonhead is being too passive here by getting into the answer choices too quickly and making a case for two or three of the answer choices. I mean, on a main point question, if you ever think there are three good answers, then you're clearly doing it wrong, right? You're doing it backward there. Yeah. You should predict, well, it basically has to have this central issue. You know, they basically wanted this. And then if you know that going into the answer choices, there's really only going to be one that has it. Or if there's two that have that central concept, one of them is also going to like misstate the passage somehow right? Be something like different from or extra. Yeah. And, and not correctly describing what the passage said. And so then that's, that's out too, because these questions are a whole bunch of must be true questions as well. Yeah. Inaccuracy is the greatest sin on this test. So, and that's why we always say one word can make an answer choice wrong, but one word can't make it right. Right. How many people love five of the six words and they're like, I just, I've just liked this. So this is correct. Well, yeah, but the sixth word has to be good too. And if it's bad, then the whole thing is bad. I like that. Inaccuracy is the greatest sin. Yeah. That's an LSAT tattoo. <laughs> that is an LSAT tattoo. Cause it also comes down, I think more frequently in reading comp and even in these main point questions, when people are debating two answer choices and they like one because it seems to be more complete. And it's like, yeah, you're right. D is less complete of an answer. It doesn't talk about some things that were mentioned at the beginning of the passage in a way that answer choice A does, but A is inaccurate. So that's just not going to fly, even though this other answer choice is incomplete. Incompleteness is much more forgivable than the cardinal sin of inaccuracy. Yeah, great. I think we did a pretty good job of that one. Want to move on? Yeah. Beautiful. Dear Nathan and Ben, dear, wow, I almost never see that these days. Dear, <laughs> dear Nathan and Ben, this is College Debater. I think you gave me the pseudonym Crystal. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. I'm writing to give you an update and to thank you for the podcast. I scored a 179 on the November LSAT. Against your advice, I decided not to go on the debate trip to England and instead spend my time decompressing at home before the LSAT. I don't believe the choice had a significant impact on my score. I tend to overthink a lot when it comes to important events like the LSAT. I wanted to thank you, the both of you, for the help that your podcast provided me throughout this process. I decided not to take any full practice tests the week of my LSAT. I maintained my LSAT readiness by taking timed sections and using the LSAT daemon. 
which is an extremely useful resource that everyone should add to their LSAT prep regimen. Well, thank you. College debater, that's great to hear. On the day of the test, your advice to take a breath and look around before starting every section calmed my nerves and helped me focus. It also showed that you were in command. It at least sent that message to your subconscious, I think. I love that. Yeah. Yep. Send yourself the message that you're just the boss of the test by not starting when the proctor says go. You just don't go. You look around the room, take a breath, and go, yep, okay, I got this. That's true. That's awesome. Yeah. College Debater continues. I plan on applying to Harvard's JDP program in the spring when my application is complete, as I confirmed that the application process is not rolling. Hmm. Wait, JDP? What Do you know what that is? I don't know what that is. Nope. Okay. To clarify, I'm not currently a student at Harvard, but instead a student at a different university planning to apply to the program. They recently opened their program to junior students attending any accredited college or university. I'll be sure to keep the personal statement advice mentioned on the podcast in mind when I work on my application. All the best, college debater, period. P.S. I might try to start working for an LSAT tutoring program. Any advice or recommendations? I'm split on whether to work for a big company or do private tutoring on my own on my college campus. Before we get into that, what is the junior deferral program? Uh, as an undergraduate student thinking about what comes after graduation, you may find yourself ready to apply to law school and also excited to explore other professional, educational, or service opportunities. You may know you want to go to law school and also want to teach for a few years, garner business or legal skills in the workforce, pursue a master's degree, or embark on a mission trip. Harvard Law School's Junior Deferral Program offers you that flexibility and breadth of opportunity. Apply to Harvard Law School when you are a college junior or the international equivalent, scheduled to complete coursework and graduate in spring 2020, and, if admitted, commit to defer that offer of admission for a minimum of two years after completing your undergraduate degree. You may use the deferral period to explore your broad interests before returning to the classroom. I don't understand the financial incentive here. They're just trying to lock people in, I guess, get them committed early on. It sounds like, yeah, I think so. Okay. Interesting. They're just going to poach people with really great LSAT scores and really great undergraduate grades. Yep. And they're going to say, Hey, you don't even need to bother applying to all these other law schools. You can just apply here as a junior in college and we'll let you know if you're in, you just have to push it off a while. They want certainty in their class you know, for like the long term. So, or, you know, they want it. They're just starting to fill seats for two and three and five years down the road. Mm-hmm. So that's smart. I don't know. Yeah. Why don't more schools do that? Yeah. I don't know. I want to see how many students. I bet it's uh, difficult to get into because it's difficult to get into Harvard Law School. Yeah. But anyway, that's the Harvard JDP program. And I, I remember that when you used, you, they used to have it just for Harvard undergrads, but I guess now they're letting anybody do it. Hmm. What do you think about uh, college debater working uh, as an LSAT tutor? I think it depends on how long you plan to do it, college debater. If you want quick cash, go to a big company, work, and then get out. If you want more cash and control of your life over time and to build something up that will last longer than do private tutoring on your own. Yeah. And it depends how much you like teaching, right? Mm -hmm. If you, if you don't really like teaching that much and if you just want to do it to make some money before you go to law school, that's what most people do when they're teaching for any of the big prep companies. 
So, yeah. And uh, I guess maybe there's a difference too between classroom and one-on-one. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to, it's going to be easier to get into a classroom. Like if you're like me and you just love being on, you know, in front of a stage, like in front of an audience with LSAT students, working for a company is probably the easiest way to get yourself in front of a class. Yeah. Because, you know, the Kaplans of the world will just hire you, <laughs> barely train you and throw you right into a classroom. Yeah. So, which can be great, you know, if you if you really love teaching, mm-hmm. um, that could be a great experience. Um, it's a little starter, a little harder to just start up classes on your own. You certainly can, but I did it, Ben did it. But yeah, you might want to get some experience with a big company before you do that. Did I ever tell you that my first class had one student? <laughs> wow. I think you did tell me that, but that's still amazing. And yeah. you, so you just did it. So you're just like, well, you get a great discount. You yeah. get an awesome deal. He was kind of like, he's like, this is it. I was like, yep, let's get started. <laughs> then the next class had three people and the next one after that had seven. So it took some time, but not too bad. It's pretty good. Amazing. Yeah, mine mine started off in the single digits for sure. I think I might have had No, you know what? I I remember the numbers. I had 9 paid students and I had 3 who I had given the seats away for like, you know, charitable purposes. Yeah. And um so I had 12 in that wow, first that's class. Pretty good, man. That- Crossed yeah, my well, first I mean, since, three classes. So <laughs> since then, I've taught smaller classes. I mean, like when I moved down here to LA and and started it up down here, I've had classes of four and six. I think. Mm-hmm. So I hope that doesn't happen in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> it is our first class in Vegas. <laughs> but yeah, they they've come to the other ones, so it's been great. Yeah. Cool. Time to move on. Yeah. So pearls Great. versus turds. We're at zero five two five turds, two ties, and zero pearls. Um, this was advice given to an emailer. You want to read it? Yep. It says, "Quote: It's a simple algorithm to understand. If you're accepted into a top fourteen, you go to the top fourteen regardless of cost. If you're accepted into a tier one." You go to the tier one if you were not given a full and complete scholarship to a tier two. If you're accepted into a tier two, you go to the tier two if you were not given a full and complete scholarship to a tier three. Tier four law schools should not even be considered. You're not going to be in a position where you're going to have to decide on a tier four law school. Oh, that must be because of the numbers that this particular person was like higher numbers than would need to go to a tier four law school. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? It is a simple algorithm, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it's a very... simple minds can grasp it easily. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you like hamburgers, eat one. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't even know. This is crazy. We've been doing, I've been doing this for 12 years. How, I don't, how long have you been doing this? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I took the test in 2007. So yeah, 11 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I, I still don't know what people mean when they say a tier one, tier two. I feel like there's so much more 
to decide here. If you get into a top 14 program like Georgetown, which is ranked 14th, I believe right now, and they're asking you to pay full price, but GW just down the street ranked somewhere in the twenties, um, I think closer to 20 offers you a full ride. You would be an idiot to go to Georgetown. I think I just, unless something, unless you know something about your future career and Georgetown is going to give you that. I just don't understand why you'd give up 300,000. Well, it's like what? $200,000 plus all the interest on top of that. You don't know what's going to happen as you go forward. Uh, you may decide that you hate law. You may decide that you love law, but want to do pro bono work. Uh, it's going to be a lot more difficult to do that. Even if you go to a T14, if you have paid full price. So even if you do end up practicing big law, 200 or $300,000 of debt is a lot of fucking money. And if you practice big law and love it and make a, make a lot of money, Hey, you'll just have less debt to pay off. You'll be out of debt. You'll be rich quicker. Yeah. Plus if you are at the top of your class at GW, I think you're going to have a better chance of getting into big law than if you're in the middle of your class at Georgetown, like going down, as long as you don't go down too far is not, it, it, it's almost always a win-win. You get cheaper prices and you perform better. It's only when you go to, down so far that certain opportunities or certain jobs won't consider you anymore. And then you have to consider whether you want to go back up, but that's not usually the case. People aren't making decisions about things that are so far apart. They're making decisions about Schools that are a little bit far apart, ones that you got into, uh, and then ones that you got into but then got money. So I, I don't know. This whole system is simple. I think it's overly simple and at the same time overly complicated. We're talking about tier four schools. I don't even know what tier three schools are, let alone tier one and tier two. So, Right. I have no idea what the tiers are. I mean, I well, that's not true. I have an idea what the tiers are. I believe that they are blocks of 50. Blocks of 50. So, yes. So the T14 is T14. Tier 1 is everything up to number 50. Gosh, I feel like there's such a difference. If you really... Like, to me, I feel like there's this wall. You have national schools, and then you have local schools. And the difference between local schools, in my mind, is very, very minimal. Yeah. Well, especially what's the difference between 50 and 51? <laughs> but according to this stupid system, you know, you would prefer to go to the, you would like dramatically prefer to go to 50 than you would to 51. Mm -hmm. Like unless 51 gave you a full ride offer, yeah, then you, you would pick 50. Like, no, <laughs> no, you, that would be dumb. And then uh, but also, by the time you're differentiating between tier three and tier four, there's no difference. There's no difference for those <laughs> schools, schools that are ranked over a hundred. I mean, schools that are ranked over 50, there's no difference. I don't even think there's a difference between like a 50 and a hundred. I, I don't know. No, that's that, what I'm saying. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's what you're saying. Okay. We were saying, yeah, the same that's thing. exactly what <laughs> we're saying. The same thing. <laughs> yeah. No, like what there's, there's just so much, there's so, so little difference, so much smaller difference than you than anyone thinks. And I mean, I would replace this algorithm with a simpler algorithm, mm -hmm. you know, and this fine, there, there might be some, some, some exceptions, but don't pay for law school. So take the best full ride offer you can get. And, it, and yeah. 
you know, feel free to rebut that presumption if you don't get a great, but I mean, if you can't get a full ride somewhere, you, hmm, I'm skeptical of your chances in law yeah. and everyone can, if you apply to the right schools, everyone can. And when it comes down to like, oh, I got into one, some school in the top 14, but I got a, like, I just can't imagine you would be so stupid to go to Berkeley if you also got a scholarship to UCLA. Yeah. That would be so dumb. <laughs> UCLA is ranked like 15 or 16 or something like that. They're not in the top 14. Oh my God. Yeah. That means nothing. UCLA has an awesome reputation in fucking Los Angeles. Do you think there's legal jobs in Los Angeles? <laughs> yes. Especially if you do better at UCLA because you're competing against, <laughs> I mean, frankly, <laughs> more ambitious competitive and on some level smarter students at Berkeley. I mean, there is still a gradient in the kinds of students going to these different schools and the harder, <laughs> the higher you go, the more you're going to have to compete just to get good grades, let alone top grades. This binary thinking of like just even having a top 14. Mm -hmm. That's so dumb. <laughs> Which was all started by Georgetown or something. Whoever was right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, because when you just, when you have this top 14 label, now you're conflating Yale with Georgetown. Yeah. Cause they're both top 14, but those aren't the same. Yeah. I could see someone paying for Yale because they want to be a Supreme, Supreme court clerk or something. I mean, look, if right. you've got the money, fine, you've got the money. You can rebut the presumption, but yeah, this is too simple. So it's a turd. Yep. I almost want to say it's like, is there, can there be something worse than a turd? <laughs> I don't know. It's a particularly smelly one. It is smelly. We're down to 06 and two, please, uh, everyone out there, please, I'm begging you to apply broadly and just really consider taking a full ride scholarship somewhere. The tuitions are out of control and it's just not a good deal. I mean, let me, let me give you a couple of real life examples. Okay. I got a text message yesterday from a former student of mine and he was all excited because he had decided because he got into Syracuse. Yeah. Okay. I have no idea what Syracuse is ranked. I don't think Syracuse is one of the top law schools, even in New York. But I said, nice scholarship. And he said, yeah, I got the Dean's scholarship of 13,000. After that, I'll be in debt. LOL. Yeah. And I quickly looked at the 509 reports. Here's the deal at Syracuse. 97% of this of Syracuse students get scholarships. Yeah. And the median scholarship at Syracuse is 24,000. Mm -hmm. So this guy essentially squeaked into Syracuse. Yeah. He's barely in at Syracuse. He's going to be paying so much money. I mean, just like outrageous amounts. He's going to be paying $40,000 a year tuition yeah. with his $13,000 scholarship. And he's just like, oh, after that, I'll be in debt, LOL. And I'm like, listen, you're paying more for your JD because you're not as well qualified as the other people that you're going to be competing with every day at law school. Yeah. Be fucking realistic. And you know, it's like, I, I don't, I'm not trying to crush people's dreams. I'm just trying to protect people from making real bad financial decisions. Yeah. You know, I said, 
I, I'm, I said, so you're paying. He said, I've thought long and hard about it and I've decided to go through with it. I said, so you're paying for your colleagues' educations. I would turn down that offer if I were you. Yeah. And he, he says, yeah, but at this point, I don't care about whether or not I'll be paying for other people's education. I believe it will be beneficial for me in the long run. Believe. Yeah, that's what I, so, I mean, we, we went on and on and I was just really trying to get him to think about it. Just please, I'm begging you to think about it a little bit more deeply because that's just sounds like wishful thinking to me. Yeah. You know, you're drinking the Kool-Aid that these fucking law schools are, are selling and they're trying to, you know, convince you how transformative this experience is going to be and whatever. And I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying the risk is way too high. Yeah. I, I said he he said he applied to twelve law schools, but I think he just applied to schools that were like all kind of reach reachy. Yeah, because he didn't get any full rides. He said, "Yeah," and it's like, well, you need a better LSAT score. You need to apply more broadly. Twelve schools uh, apparently was not enough. You didn't apply to the right range of schools. Maybe there was problems with your personal statement. I don't know. But if you like, just please, God, don't pay $40,000 a year to go to a school like Syracuse. Yeah. If you're going to do that, you should always be able to find a slightly lower ranked school that will give you a full ride. And the tiers have nothing to do with it. It's just some school somewhere should be willing to give you a full ride. One more just update from a student. This is sort of the, the opposite of that. From a 3L, okay, former student of mine who's a 3L, yeah, who used my uh, the podcast and then uh, also books and she did my online class. She had a 3.15 GPA from a not great state school, but she scored 170 on the LSAT. She got into all 18 schools she applied to. She got a total of 1.25 million dollars in scholarship offers to choose from. Yeah, and then she ended up going to UNC School of Law which I have no idea what they're ranked and I don't care. But the reason why I'm saying this is she said, I have thrived there. Hmm. Okay. So she, she worked her ass off. She got a great LSAT score. She took a full ride to a regional law school, UNC school of law. Mm -hmm. And then she kicked ass there. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge success story. You know, the, the squeaking into a slightly more prestigious school and then, like, really struggling there. Ugh. <laughs> it's just not a good plan, people. I agree. Sometimes people think that I'm, like, elitist when I'm saying that, but I'm, I'm just not. I'm, I'm just saying for people who... Listen, I was a first-generation college student. I was paying for law school with my own money. I, it was not a good decision for me to, 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 to borrow money for AJD that it ended up i i mean i thought i wanted to be a lawyer i like so many applicants i had no idea what lawyers actually do mm-hmm. but i thought i wanted to be a lawyer but it i hated law school it just didn't work out for me and i saw other colleagues of mine fail out of law for a million other reasons yeah and the the risk is just too high to justify 40 50,000 dollars a year tuition that's not elitism. That's just trying to help young people not like completely hamstring themselves financially for the rest of their lives. All right. Should I stop yelling about that? Uh, no, not yet, actually. Sorry, I got to finish the game I'm playing. <laughs>
<laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, it's it's all very good. Okay, so this is a turd about these tiers. We don't ever talk about tiers. Tier privileges are revoked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, should I tackle this LSAT India? Let's do it. Okay, so this is uh, from 2009, LSAT India number two, apparently. I don't know what that means. I don't even remember. But section one, question eight, the question says... An aesthetic reaction to a work of art depends on the immediate environment and true appreciation of art requires that it be presented in an environment that allows for lengthy, solitary deliberation. Hmm. Okay, so we got two claims here. They're kind of related to each other. Your reaction to a work of art depends on your environment, the environment right around the piece of art. And true appreciation of art requires that it be presented in an environment that allows for lengthy, solitary deliberation. So, if you, I have a picture in my head. Do you? I do. I imagine actually someone sitting in a chair in front of a piece of art, like painting. Where are they? Are they at home or are they? They're at a museum. In a, yeah, a I was picturing an museum. art museum. Yeah, like a big empty gallery. Yep. Okay. Cool. Okay. So your reaction depends on the environment, and if you want to really appreciate it, then you need to be sitting there for a long time in solitary deliberation. So you need to be by yourself. Hence. Yeah, so, mm, well, I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to encourage readers, like students, to actually think about the content, right? Yeah. Like to, These words have meaning. And if you're just like, ooh, aesthetic reaction to art, blah, you know, like, blah, so, blah, you know what I mean? Blah. How? Yeah, yeah where, where they just aren't actually even considering what they're talking about. But I'm, I'm picturing someone in a huge empty gallery with plenty of time to deliberate, truly appreciating this art. And I'm imagining, I mean, this kind of takes care of the first clause of this first sentence, but I'm imagining that they're kind of close to the piece of art, um, which is what you're imagining too, which takes care of that initial claim, right? They're not in some other building watching it from a video camera. Yeah. It's the immediate environment. So I'm also picturing the opposite of that. Okay. Like if you're on a tour where you're rushed through, you know, mm. Hey, there's the Mona Lisa. Okay. We're on to the next, you know, yep. you're not going to be able to truly appreciate it according to these rules. Yeah. Uh, or if there's, imagine, you know, a, a billion noisy kids running around mm-hmm. or just, it's too crowded. Again, you're trying to see the Mona Lisa and you're at the Louvre and there's like lines, crowds of people. You know, that's according to these rules, that's not going to allow you to truly appreciate this piece of art. Yeah. Okay. There's particularly three rules, right? You have to have time, lengthy. You have to be by yourself, solitary. And three, deliberation. You have to think about it. Yep. Hence, okay, we're about to see a conclusion. It is unfortunate that art museums have recently invented the notion of the art show event for which historically important, rarely seen works are collected into a show that is then heavily advertised and brings in huge crowds. Okay, so the conclusion is that this is unfortunate. In the premises, we never talked about what makes something good or bad, but apparently when people come to these shows... Since there are huge cr- crowds, they won't be able to truly appreciate the art since true appreciation requires 
lengthy, solitary deliberation. Does that mean that this is bad? Does it mean that they, when you have huge crowds, can you not engage in lengthy, solitary deliberation? I guess it depends on whether the solitary actually means people around you or just in your head, I guess. I don't know. That's one thing I'm thinking right now. Yeah, I would I mean huge crowds does not really seem like lengthy, solitary deliberation. It doesn't. So. I just didn't know if it was like in your head, like you could be in the crowd and just think about it on your own. But in any case, okay. assuming that they're going after that, I think the biggest problem with this conclusion is they, they talk about how it's unfortunate and that's an, there's an assumption here, right? <laughs> that that true appreciation of art is something that should be pursued. Yes, that it's valuable. Yeah. Okay. okay. So then the question says, the statements above is true and most strongly support which one of the following? Okay. So this is a must be true question. We're trying to figure out what's got to be true given what we were just told. Okay. So as I read each answer, I'm just going to ask myself, given what we now know, and we know a decent amount, does this claim have to be true? A. Can I make a prediction? Sure. Go for it. Uh, huge crowds do not allow for lengthy solitary deliberation. Yeah, or maybe even these art shows, right? Art show yep. events do not allow for true appreciation because they lead to the huge crowds, which then prevents you from being solitary, which then prevents you from being truly appreciative of what you're doing. Yep. Okay. Hey, people who really love and understand art tend to avoid museum art show events. Whoa, <laughs> we don't have no idea what people are doing in reaction to this. So this is out. Yeah, the... The fact that aesthetic reaction to a work of art depends on the immediate environment and true appreciation requires being presented in an environment that allows for lengthy solitary deliberation, all that stuff is not necessarily known by people who really love and understand art. Yeah. Right. You can't just like put the facts that we know, you can't put those facts into anyone else's head. And that's what you would have to do to pick A. Yep. Okay. And that they would take action on that. Right. Um, B, the more time one spends and the fewer people that are around, the more one will like a work of art. <laughs> okay. This has got a lot of problems. They never talked about this like continuum, right? That the more time you have, the more alone you can be, the more you're going to like it. It just said true appreciation requires these things. Yeah. There's no, it was it's like binary. binary. Yeah. Exactly. A necessary yeah. condition. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. So B is Also, out. it wasn't about liking work of art. No. It was about truly appreciating, which you might be able to appreciate something that you dislike. Sure. Okay. C, most of the people who go to museum art show events do not know how to appreciate art and fail to realize what they are missing. Again, we can't get into their heads. They never talked about that. Yeah. For all we know, everybody who goes to these art show events could be like, oh boy, bummer, bummer. There's so many people here. Yep. It'd be so much better if we could solitary, have solitary deliberation. They, we, they might know. We don't know if they know. Yeah. Okay. D art museum directors. Oh, great. I can already like start to vomit. Yeah. We don't, they never talked about directors. So this is going to be wrong. Yep. Art directors are forced to put on art show events in order to raise money. <laughs> okay. Those were for people really thinking outside the box. Like, oh, well, then why would they do these? Oh, they're trying to make money. I know it must be true. 
Yeah, it's a must be true question. We need to pick an answer that is conservatively founded in the facts that we were given. And this is <laughs> not at all founded in the facts we were given. Probably true in real life. Yeah. Or very likely true in real life. But it's just not what the passage was about. It says the statements above, if true, most strongly support which one of the following. So which one it's a reading comprehension question, essentially, which one of these did it say? Yep. It did not say that. So we've eliminated every answer choice up to this point confidently. Yep. It better be E or we miss something big. E museum art show events do not facilitate proper appreciation of art. No, they do not. Because of the big crowds, they prevent people from appreciating it. The answer is E, for sure. Yeah, we have to accept the conclusion of the argument because it says the statements above, if true. Yeah. So the hence is like, because of the reason that true appreciation of art requires lengthy, solitary deliberation, because of that, it's unfortunate that art museums do this thing with the art show event. Why? Oh, because of the crowds or whatever. But yeah, E, if all that's true, then I guess museum art show events do not facilitate proper appreciation of art. Otherwise, why would it be unfortunate on those grounds? Yeah. LSAT India is easy. Well, the first eight of them anyway. So far. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Do we have time for this personal statement? Uh, I have time if you have time. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the original draft and the final version that was sent through our personal statement review. What would you say? Engine of hell? I don't know. I'm trying to. (laughs) (laughs) I, I imagine it's, it can be kind of painful for people because we're actually, it's not just doing it for you. I mean, we are, we're also teaching you to write. Well, we really are because we can't do this for you, right? It's like, I want this to be better. You're not doing it better, but you have to do it better. So redo that sentence, add these facts, tell us more about that. It just goes back and forth for so long, which is why. And yeah, yeah, we will polish your writing for sure. But we're going to do it by proposing changes and then you, you have to accept or reject those changes. And we're, the idea is we're hoping that you're going to actually look at the edits we're making and, and, you know, take some learning on your writing by doing that. So I remember, boy, this one, we went back and forth so many times with Sam. Yeah. How should we do this? I don't know. We could read like maybe the first couple paragraphs of the original. Sure. And then switch to the final. Yeah. Does I mean, that I sound think we right? We want to give the original the best chance at being successful, but if it's not going anywhere, we can just stop. I, I yeah. don't remember where I don't remember this. It's been a while. All right. So, so Sam says, this is the original draft that Sam came up with or sent us, I think, uh, before we started working with him. When I took a job working for the Indiana Democratic Party as a field organizer, after graduating, I knew it would be difficult, but something told me it would be more like an episode of Veep or House of Cards, semicolon, fast-paced, adventurous, and filled with fun that made the hard work worth it. Four months into the job, 
Six counties and three field offices later, I couldn't have been further from the reality of what this job entails. I didn't go to law school to be a social justice warrior. After graduating because Donald Trump made me upset, I recognized that the work that needed to be done wasn't sitting in a classroom. It is driving 20,000 miles in four months, making hundreds of calls a day, and organizing for Democratic candidates in one of the most conservative parts of the country. Do we want to talk about any of that? <laughs> or just keep reading? Well, I mean, I'll just point out a couple of things that are wrong with it. Yeah. It's got two semicolons in the first paragraph. The first of those semicolons is used incorrectly because the second half of the sentence is not a standalone sentence. Yes. So if you're using semicolons and you're using them incorrectly, you're just like, Lawyers are going to catch that. Mm -hmm. Law school admissions people are going to catch that immediately. Half of these sentences are broken, actually. So the the second, the first sentence is really long, like run on basically with the incorrect semicolon. And then the second sentence, four months into the job, six counties and three field offices later, I couldn't have been further from the reality of what this job entails. That's not a, what? That's like not. That's, that's, that's just not a sentence. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is either. You're, you're, you yourself are further from the reality of what this job entails. So you're becoming less aware of what your job involves or you're becoming yeah, more what, aware like over time. Yeah, right. What, what he means to say, of course, is I realized that I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Yep. It didn't look like what I thought it was going to be, but you're just, he's just saying it so poorly. I mean, just the, he's got a lot of facts in here, which is nice, but he's just got really poor sentence structure. Yeah. I, I think what he's trying to say is he's actually closer to reality, right? The, <laughs> Four right. months later, he, I am closer to the reality of what this job entails and it sucks. <laughs> yeah. And what he means is I was, I was far from the reality before I started the job. Cause I thought it was going to be like Veep or house of cards. Yeah. I also hate that he's saying that because it makes him look naive. Yeah. Right. Like when you're, you don't need to say, I didn't know, or I thought it was going to be like this other way. Cause then all that does is makes you sound like you don't know what you're doing. I also don't understand this. I didn't go to law school to be a social justice warrior. I mean, I don't think he hasn't gone to law school yet, so I don't want to go to law school. I'm not sure what, what that means either. Oh, he might be saying I went to work. That's what he's saying, <laughs> but he's, he's constructing it negatively with, I didn't do this instead of saying what he did do. His point is, Oh yeah, I see what you're saying. I purposely mm. started on the campaign trail. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I knew that I didn't need to, I knew that law school wasn't the right thing, but then of course, yeah. the problem with that is that now he's saying law school isn't the right thing, <laughs> which they don't want to hear that. So he's just, he's got a lot of good ideas, but it's all just like, you know, convoluted and uh, I don't know. Maybe read one more paragraph. Yeah. Okay. So this starts to explain that sentence. I had originally planned on attending law school immediately following graduating in the spring. Ugh. Following graduating. Following graduating in the spring. <laughs> My experience serving underprivileged children and working and interning. <laughs> Serving underprivileged children and working and interning with United Way had introduced me to a lot of the systemic, system, systematic problems. Hmm. What if you meant systemic? He did. Yeah, systemic problems that public interest lawyers deal with. I am so glad that I didn't do that. Ooh. 
Okay. I instead chose to do what I'm doing as I type this. Driving another 80 miles between rural offices, searching for a radio station, and scrambling to hit my daily 250 volunteer recruitment call quota. I hope you're not typing this while you're driving. (laughs) I know. That's so funny. It actually looks like he's typing it on his phone while he's driving. Um, As I type this. Okay. Uh, We should probably just read a little bit more. I get to my old, crusty, storyfront office in the little town of New Albany, Indiana. Every day, a little before 8 a.m., I listen to any messages left on the answering machine over the short eight hours that I wasn't there. I usually print off walk packets and make sure all of our phones are charged for the varying numbers of volunteers that will hopefully be walking in the door later that afternoon and so on. This is actually, this reminds me, I guess we must have cut these first two paragraphs, which is super common. It's like, go get rid of them. Yep. The second half of this is interesting. I'm glancing at it now. Remember his whole thing about Albert? Yeah. And I remember just guy? a lot of negativity like that. This is not great. I don't know. Maybe we should read some of this. Yeah. He, so he, he sort of structured the whole second half of his personal statement around this one anecdote where he goes out to this guy, Albert, who is somewhere out way the, like a million miles away. He has to drive two hours there and back. Yeah. Because this blind guy, I don't know if you want to read part of it. Go sure. ahead. Albert is a six. So this is a few paragraphs in it says Albert is a 67 year old retired Marine Corps vol- veteran and is 90% blind in both eyes. He is one of the most knowledgeable and easy to talk to people I've ever met. He told me how he signed up to volunteer online, spoken to people on the phone, donated money, and no one has ever driven out to his home to actually give him something to do. By the way, this is focusing on Albert rather than on our our hero, Sam. He figured out a way to blow up the call list onto his screen, and he dictated around two hours. Dedicated. Oh, sorry. Dedicated. Sorry, I was thinking blind. He, (laughs) He dedicated around two hours of his day to make a handful of phone calls. I drove out to his house every week or so, picked up his old list, and dropped off a new one, each time leaving feeling more and more encouraged. Okay. For Albert, I gave him a task that, while simple, made him feel like he was a part of something bigger. He did A part there. A part. One word. word, A part. He didn't make very many calls. It was difficult on his eyes, but for him, it was worth it. Similarly, for me, the drive to his house was long. The calls that he did make didn't necessarily lighten my workload or count towards my organizer goals. Albert didn't take me out of work or out of the field. Huh? I don't know. Just because I missed my call goal on those days and I had to be late for some type of county meeting and gas didn't get cheaper, Albert reminded me what it is what is so essential in order for this job, or really any job, to succeed for that matter people (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's that's a terrible sentence it's really way too long way too many of these comma clauses yeah and then it's just like the ultimate sentiment of it it's sweet but it's like he's missing his goals (laughs) yeah because he's driving out to go meet albert which again it's sweet but you're missing your goals though yeah it doesn't sound good no, Sounds like no, it does not. You're, you're misallocating your time and resources. 
This is the closing paragraph. So your most important sentence is your first sentence. Your most important, second most important sentence is your last sentence. And your last paragraph is pretty damn important too. And this is what we read. Field organizing for Democrats in one of the reddest states in the country has taught me patience, communication, determination, and every other skill that most people attain from any real challenge. (laughs) It's telling because it's just listing all of these, you know, like attributes. And then it's also saying, ah, but I could have learned that from anything, any real challenge, any challenge. I could have got that. Most people learn those things. It's also every other skill that most people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And every other skill. (laughs) That's overselling. So we have telling and overselling. What I don't, yep. what I didn't expect it to teach me was something I thought I already understood as well as one can. Semicolon. People and our collective and individual successes are all that matters. It's cliche. So this is not yeah. uncommon. A lot of people make these mistakes and that's what we're trying to help you. So uh, help you avoid. This is the final version. Um, I'm sure it still has things that could change or be better, but. This is what we all worked on and came up with, and we feel like it's worlds apart from the original. I'll, I'll take it. Do you want to read it? Yep. I routinely arrive at my old storefront office in the little town of New Albany, Indiana, just before 8 a.m. The, the red blinking light on the answering machine greets me. The inbox has already filled with messages since I left the office at midnight. I make sure all the cell phones are charged and that all the walk packets are printed for the volunteers who will hopefully arrive later in the afternoon. I then call the county leaders and volunteer captains to plan the day, to pack up supplies, and to hit the road by noon to drive to my next county. It's easy to get lost in the business of each day and lose sight of why I'm doing this work. When the day is over, all the lists are entered, and my car is parked, I'm finally able to reflect on my life as a field organizer for the Indiana Democratic Party. When I took this job, I sensed that it would be a challenging and fast-paced adventure. In five months, I've organized six counties, established three field offices, driven over 25,000 miles, made thousands of calls, and campaigned for Democratic candidates in one of the most conservative parts of the country, southeastern Indiana. New Albany is a small southern river town that straddles the banks of the Ohio River. Clark County to the east is densely populated, large, and like many other cities in the Ohio River Valley, suffering from a declining manufacturing economy. I train and empower local leaders with the tools necessary to grow and organize their volunteer base. Clark County is essential in the 9th Congressional District because of its diverse population and number of unregistered voters. It also has one of the lowest voter turnouts of any county in Indiana. It's hard to organize an effective campaign in the county because the newer generation of leadership often clashes with the older establishment. I spent my first month there meeting with every candidate I could. I met with county council hopefuls, state house candidates, and our congressional candidate. I organized a countywide night of unity where I presented the candidates up and down the ballot with a centralized message and plan. I coordinated with our Indiana Secretary of State candidate to canvas on particular days with down-ballot candidates and county party officials. I consolidated the different reporting formats and door-knocking lists into one system for reporting and planning. Since creating this unified system, new groups and individuals have continued to opt into our centralized county plan. We've also seen participation from volunteers and candidates increase by 300% over previous D2 
decentralized campaigns. As I write this statement, we are a little over one week from the election. Clark County and the rest of my region has gone from one of the lowest performing regions in the state to the only region that has hit 100% of our door goals, volunteer numbers, and voter contact rate. We are currently at 110% of our shift goal. The local candidates and party officials who I have trained over the last few months will be leading two different offices in the county so I can continue to train volunteers. Clark County was a problem county that needed organizers from across the state to come help during the last week of the election. It is now over capacity and ready to share volunteers with surrounding counties. It took months of trial and error to finally arrive at a place where this region succeeds. I've driven across my counties numerous times to meet someone new, to attend a different county fair, or to convince a different organization to partner with me. We succeeded in Clark County and across the region because all these small steps paid off. The election will be over soon, and regardless of the results, I'm leaving this little corner of southern Indiana better equipped than when I arrived in May. Much more positive. (laughs) So much more positive. We had a hard time with Sam getting him to say positive things about his job. He, he was like, I don't know if he's just people get into this like self deprecating mode or whatever. Yeah. But he kept saying things that sounded really minor leagues when he did a lot of cool stuff. (laughs) Right. When we finally get like this statement here is like, he came in and kicked ass in Clark County. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we just, I mean, all, that's all we had to do. I mean, it, it took some pulling. <laughs> we had to go multiple rounds with him, mm-hmm. but we finally got him presenting himself, you know, as a winner. Yeah. And that, that is really, really important. Well done. Good luck, Sam. We hope the best for you. Yeah. I can't wait to hear Sam where you end up and, um, I'm sure it'll be somewhere awesome and uh, hopefully we can update the listeners on your successes down the road. Yeah. That was show number 175. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.